0: In this episode of Engineer Your Career, we talk to Tony Hayes. Tony is a design mechanical engineer at Black & Veatch who works on water and wastewater treatment plant design. He has a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from the University of Oklahoma and a master's degree in mechanical engineering from Michigan Tech. Tony has also served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Peru as a water, sanitation, and hygiene specialist. In our conversation, we talk about how communication plays a role in just about every part of a job, and Tony shares how activities outside of work and education can be a great place to learn and practice soft skills. Welcome, Tony, to EYC. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Engineer Your Career. I'm Brendan Timrak, and always joined by Troy Bowen.
1: Dun dun dun! That's me.
0: He's here. Hi. He's live. He's present. He's the, the man.
1: In the voice, not in the flesh.
0: No, we are not in person. It is. It is. We're recording this the end of April. It is mm-hmm. still uh, stay at home in the state of Michigan and lots of other. Lots of other states Which suits
1: this podcast well. We were planning it for it, right? Because it's not in person. I'm never gonna be in person anyway. It's all, it's all in the ones and the zeros. In the ones that's and the true. zeros, though, we also have Mr. Tony Hayes. Tony Hayes, welcome to the ones and the zeros.
2: Uh, I I feel. What, does that make me a half? If I am amongst the ones and the zeros, I'm. At any I'm given point,
1: 0.5. you are a one or a zero.
2: I guess oh, that's, that's oh, what I'm it a, is. I'm a I'm a ten. Ten out of ten. <laughs> oh man. Like,
1: He's, you got to take the macro view. You can't just look at a single number. You got to zoom out. I'm actually a million. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if, Probably <laughs> with ones and
0: zeros. Yeah. Huge. Brilliant. Awesome. Brilliant.
1: But dude, it's nice to have you on the show. So Tony's a good friend of Brendan and I. Um, we uh, know him from Michigan Tech Days and stuff, but really glad that you're here, man. And how's life, dude? How, how are you doing?
2: Uh, you know, things are good. Uh, you've alluded to it that uh, that uh, we're in an interesting time of the world right now. This is... Um, you know week six or so of uh of uh stay at home order in uh, beautiful sunny kansas city missouri so the work from home experiment continues and uh yeah but otherwise things are good keeping busy with little bitty hobbies uh put up some trellises in the garden yesterday and yeah staying six feet and washing hands
1: it's an interesting time for side projects right for the people like you have a weird amount of more time for side project i don't know how Tony, what are your thoughts on that side? Do you feel like you have more time for side projects now?
2: I feel, um, I feel that you do, or I did, and then we got Animal Crossing, and then all of my side projects <laughs> just migrated to <laughs> Animal Crossing. So I'm lucky I got out in the real garden instead of tending my virtual my virtual apple orchard. Uh, nice. but, uh, yeah,
1: I think it's yeah, it's great. You gotta you gotta. You have more time, but it could also just be more time to go into something that you look back on and wish you didn't spend time on.
2: <laughs> and isn't that life? Yeah, that's true. That's true. The more
0: time we have, the less efficiently we use it, I feel like.
1: Dude, there is something about that, right? There is something where if you got like a huge to-do list, you're so much more productive than if like, because I feel like if I have a long to-do list and when I start to get to the end of it, like the last couple items, I get so unproductive. mm mm-hmm. Like it's it's like I'm almost looking for things to not do besides my to-do list.
2: yeah, there's a there's an economic principle, and your your listenership will surely uh, uh, let us know in the comments of uh, work expanding to the time allotted for it. Oh, so yeah. it doesn't yeah. matter. yeah it it will just always take as long as you say it's going to take.
1: Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of people staying at home working that are really um, exemplifying that that principle. <laughs> oh, yeah. well, I gotta send a couple of emails that's. That's probably gonna take seven, eight hours. <laughs> <A> days work. <laughs> you know, you got to spell check it, and then you got a, you know, you got to write a couple drafts, and then you got to have a brainstorming session outside. Yeah. <laughs>
2: you gotta, yeah, check the grammarly. Look yes. at this, the thesaurus. Roger, what, Roger, what do you think of this email? <laughs> ridiculous, ridiculous. Ugh.
1: All right, man. Well, we should probably, we should probably get to it so people can learn the awesome, great story of Tony. So, how about you start us off with kind of walking us through how you got to today?
2: Um, that's a good. That's a good question. So, I uh, I'm from rural Oklahoma. You might hear a slight twang. You know, I was uh, always interested in science and mathematics, and had some educational opportunities in my small town that let me focus on those. So, by the time I got to college, I was an engineering undecided major. Uh, through uh, the orientation classes and things I, I settled in on on mechanical engineering, which was described to me as the liberal arts of the mechanic or of the, uh, the engineering degree. Rather, I don't know if that's true, but uh, I've been satisfied with it. After undergrad, I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I felt some some uh, will say personal longing to contribute to something other than myself. Uh, which led me to find an opportunity to serve in the Peace Corps as well as pursue my master's degree simultaneously in a now defunct program called the Peace Corps Master's International Program at Michigan Tech. So to to summarize, that was a, a year of mechanical engineering curriculum followed by two years of my service in the Peace Corps where I worked as a water and sanitation volunteer in Peru. From there, I returned to Michigan Tech to conclude my studies. And then I found myself having finished the short-term goal, which was attain the degree, uh, checked that box, and started uh, hitting career fairs and things. And that was an adventure, um, not knowing exactly where you would end up or exactly what you wanted to do. found myself in a similar state of... Um, broad optimism and also terrifying anxiety because you don't really know what you want to do. So funnily enough, I found myself crashing on the couch with Brennan Timrak.
0: You you were here, um, yes.
2: For about a month as I was prepared to start pursuing opportunities in uh, Detroit, where uh, I got a call for a position that I hadn't actually applied to, um, but I had gotten in the application ecosystem of a uh, engineering consulting firm called Black and Veatch through some of the career fair stuff that I'd done where uh, I uh, did not get a position that I was applying for but I was in the in the system and got a call to uh, interview for a job as a um, mechanical engineer in um, water and sanitation uh, where I find myself today it'll be some three years in July. Yeah, packed it all up and moved down to Kansas City.
1: (laughs) That's no man. There's there's so many interesting elements. I think so for me, the first thing that piqued my interest is you did undergrad. I guess for those who are listening, where where did you undergrad?
2: Uh, I did my undergrad at the University of Oklahoma.
1: Okay, so not Michigan Tech, and actually a ways from Michigan Tech. So when you made the move from undergrad to masters, like you went to a completely different state. So. Can you talk a little bit about that like how did you go about exploration of these master's programs like i guess you know that's it seems to me like someone who's all for the most part all of my graduate school has been at the same university as my undergrad it seems like right. quite the process to go somewhere else and completely different
2: right that's that's kind of an interesting story as well so um you know having it, it was my senior year in college i remember distinctly i was i was uh, an undergrad research assistant Uh, for a professor, um, and at the time I was on track to pursue an accelerated master's degree at the University of Oklahoma. Um, There were some, I think, issues of fit and issues of interest uh, that caused me to reevaluate that. Um, So my, my undergraduate advisor, who would have been my graduate advisor, and I weren't really seeming to make progress on the work that I had proposed to do with him, Um, Whereas part of my senior capstone project was going rather smoothly with another professor. And all I could come to the conclusion was it was just a a matter of management and interest. So, uh, so at that time, and uh, uh, I had decided to decelerate my um, (laughs) pursuit of my master's at the university of Oklahoma and pursue kind of personal, personal goals of, of, like I say, contributing to making the world a better place. Something, something that I felt would, satisfy me more personally than academic pursuit at the time. I I had had a a couple of friends do various different international work. And um, because I grew up in a religious community, I I knew a number of people who had gone on missions. So I was looking at, okay, well, English teaching is an option. I I spoke with some friends from high school who had uh, taught English in China and in Korea, South Korea, that is. Um, And uh, a connection from from undergrad, uh, Donald Norris, had actually done the Peace Corps Master's International Program in Mechanical Engineering at at Michigan Tech. So this was a guy who I had labs with, who graduated a year ahead of me. I called him up and had a few good conversations about the program, the advisors, yeah, and uh, had reached out and I I think probably had a brief phone interview with, um, or, more like an informational interview with one of, one of the advisors, Michelle, Michelle Miller, um, of the program at the time, and yeah, put in my application, and uh, then I just, yeah, moved, moved up stakes and drove i35 north a thousand miles and found myself <laughs> found myself in, in the, in, in the mm-hmm. north woods.
0: Yeah, this is like, this is the time where, where you and I first met Tony. Like I was sitting, I I had been in the program. I, we started at the same time, but I'm like being in this office that I was assigned. There's like this guy named Tony or Robert or whatever his name is. He's supposedly gonna be showing up. And then like one day you, you show up walking in the lab and then kind of, you know, our lives got intertwined uh, for, for a long time there. Um, yeah. We, we talked briefly um in a previous episode or our after hours episode on what, on if I should get a master's or not about a little bit about what I did, uh, not too in depth though. So can you give us a little bit of a rundown of the program you did and maybe how it's different than what people might consider a traditional master's degree in engineering? Sure.
2: Uh, so uh, big picture for, for 30 years, the, the Peace Corps, which is a, um, a program in the department of state federal government, had this um, constellation of relationships with universities in the United States to allow people to pursue degrees of higher learning in addition to fulfilling their service. There were several benefits that were um, touted by the program, but eventually, and I believe that would have been 2016, for reasons of a shift in direction, both, uh, both, uh, I believe, on the side of academia, as well as the side of the Peace Corps, the, the relationship was uh, dissolved. The way that it would differ from the pursuit of a traditional uh, graduate course of study was, for us in particular, as me- mechanical engineers, it was a rather interdisciplinary um, curriculum. There you know we we took classes with people from civil engineering backgrounds environmental engineering uh, geology in uh the pursuit of uh, humanitarian uh, engineering problems that that would differ from a traditional masters program in which you would you know i guess i guess actually the similarity would be that whereas our emphasis was in humanitarian engineering another another master's candidate might say they wanna study, you know, thermal fluid systems or uh, material science or some subset of, of engineering problems that might be, um, that might be more um, academic and uh, with, a, with a trajectory toward even further study um, in
0: academia. Got it, so how then, you go on campus for a year, you take some classes, you go into Peace Corps, how did how did engineering flow into that then? Uh, what were you doing that was still related to your degree while you're in these two years in Peru doing um, doing waste, waste uh, doing water and sanitation?
2: So I guess what I would say to that is during the recruitment process that was almost a direct question from from Washington as well. Um, there was an opportunity that I was being considered for, and it's a you know it's a, a rather opaque and bureaucratic process. Where eventually a, a placement officer in Washington said, "Hey, do you want to do something that's a little more on the hands-on engineering side in Latin America, or do you want to do something that's uh, going to strictly be education in Sub-Saharan Africa?" And I decided to pursue, uh, as I had when I elected to attend Michigan Tech in the first place. I thought, you know, I spent all this time on an engineering degree. I'm I want to explore to its fullest what what an, what engineering can mean, albeit in an unconventional setting and manner um, so in in Peru, I was uh, a water and sanitation volunteer, which we don 't have to get into the the details of what that what that program means, but i I, I spent a lot of time with uh, voluntary committees in a rural village who were interacting with the built environment. Um, Prior to my arrival there, there had been a, uh, a massive spending effort from the Peruvian government to invest in water infrastructure throughout the country. But um, some 20 years on, uh, many of these systems found themselves in a state of disrepair. And so part of my role was to perform inspections with, with my local counterparts to see what things could be addressed with minimal intervention locally and to apply for funding from the from the federal government under um, uh, uh, an incentive program to uh, rehabilitate some of this water infrastructure. That was my direct work uh, as a as a peace corps volunteer. My work um, with Michigan Tech, uh, what eventually formed the the basis of my of my report, was um, was. More about human-centered design, that was a a major part of our curriculum uh, emphasizing, you know, humanitarian engineering, uh, community involvement in the design process. And I'd identified a problem in the community that in northern Peru, quinoa is less quinoa, the the fun, happy superfood that we're all familiar with that, you know, I don't know. You may the, or may the, not like,
0: be with like the, the, the hipster food of the day, or at least that, oh, yeah, that was yeah, yeah. as of like five years ago.
2: Or yeah, five years ago. Get, get, get hipster. Now we're on to uh, moringa uh, injections or something like that.
0: Oh, man. Um, hey, I yeah. have so much to say about that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know you do. <laughs> so quinoa, quinoa was being uh, promoted by the Peruvian government as a, as a new cash crop. And trying to extend its growth range uh, further from the the traditional the traditional growth range, which is in the southern central part of Peru, into more northern parts of Peru. There are some difficulties with that from an uh, from an agricultural perspective, finding the right uh, finding the right cultivars that are adapted to a uh, a warmer, wetter, more tropical climate as the one that I was. We were on the wet side of the Andes, but. Another impediment to its wide adoption is the fact that it is hard to grow and to um, produce to a quality that is acceptable to be sold on a market. Um, there are extensive post-harvest steps um, that, that involve you know, um, cutting and uh, sifting, uh, threshing, uh, winnowing, uh, scrubbing for some uh, varieties of quinoa that have, um, that have a, a, a very thick germ. Um, like all your all your white rice that you find in the store has been scrubbed mechanically. It's all been mechanically scrubbed. That a similar process has to happen in quinoa and, and uh, in poor rural Peru. A lot of that labor is still done by hand. So um, part of what I did was uh, look at some solutions that have been deployed in parts of the rice growing world and uh, likewise, uh, some solutions that have been developed for for millet production in uh, in um, um, parts of Africa that that for for which millet is a staple crop, and applied the, some of those lessons learned about mechanization to make a pedal powered threshing machine that's uh, for, for a, a quinoa growing co op in my town. So that was probably more more akin to the product development community, like participative community design um, that I learned in school. And uh, I would say that what I've been doing with my work with Black & Beach is more or less a, a direct step from my primary Peace Corps duties in the water and sanitation sector.
0: I want to uh, take a step back and say the the machine you built, Tony, was really great. I saw a video of it. I didn't see it in person. But, I mean, you're essentially taking something that was done by hand of, like, beating stalks of quinoa on a rock or something similar, I'm guessing, or in some fashion. and you, Yeah, like, or beating with a stick. Yeah. Yeah, and you completely, like, mechanized it. it it's, it's uh, like, simple and elegant and a really great solution. And I think uh, that's a great application of you didn't know anything about maybe grain harvesting beforehand. But you had the skill set from undergrad, from a year of grad school to be like, I can go out, I can find a similar solution and adapt it to the needs here. Sure. Um, oh,
2: yeah. Yeah. And I mean, part of it, part of it is research. Part of it is actually knowing how to perform research itself. I think that the experience uh, of one of the courses that we took that was, uh, you know, um, I forget what was what was the name of Kurt's class, Brennan? It was uh, uh, engineering and low... Engineering oh, with resource. developing communities. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly that, and where where we had to perform research on some topic of interest with us. And mine was human power. I, I was fascinated with human powered vehicles in undergrad, as fascinated with pedal powered machinery and in, in graduate school. And it just so happened that there was a problem that has been solved with human power that presented itself to me in in my proving community. So a lot of reading about you know not just those design challenges but uh understanding the the body of text that surrounds uh, appropriate technology you know reading reading publications from the food and agriculture organization of the united nations you know it was a it was a is a, a really uh satisfying holistic approach to a to a problem that has an engineering solution
1: i think that's something as engineers we really struggle with especially if Unfortunately, in the undergrad mindset, like because you don't get exposed to academic papers and and, like doing a lot of reading like that, I don't think you realize the value of it. Like I I think I guess I'm trying to say is like as undergrad, it's often to be like, oh, I have a problem. I'm going to come up with the solution and it's going to be the best solution. And I think in grad school, you start to reform that as like, hey, I have a problem. Let me see what everyone else has done. Then let me see if I can improve it. Because there's so many people doing stuff like i'm sorry if you're listening like if you're gonna build something the first time it's not going to be as good as if you can build off what other people have done and so there is a value to the the literature review process which everyone dreads i think i like
0: but yeah. in some ways yeah. it's
1: like it can be the most important step because otherwise you could literally do all your research and it could have been done before like
2: yeah and
1: so i that's mean it, yeah.
2: yeah exactly and there, there's there's always the dread is my is my work novel enough right but 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 on the other hand, you, you have to, uh, much of engineering is incremental. You know, we didn't, uh, the old saying, Rome wasn't built in a day. Well, neither were, you know, some of the fundamental elements of modern engineering, you know? Yeah, for sure.
1: Um, one thing I'm interested to comment on, Tony, so an outside perspective on the Peace Corps, like, it's like, okay, yeah, you might, you might, you might be listening if you're not familiar with the Peace Corps people and you're, or listeners and you're like, well, okay, he's, you know, he's got this problem, they're, they're beating it with sticks, but he's going to mechanize it. But in my eyes, that seems like one of the smallest parts of the problem at hand, because you also have communication and cultural expectations. And like, you're, you're trying to design something, which, okay, you're kind of comfortable with in a totally foreign, unknown space, in a language that's not your own language. Like, I think that that has gotta be one of the hardest elements of actually doing something. And I'm curious as to your, like your thoughts on communication and the challenge that presented.
2: Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it was a, it is a, a struggle for sure. And you know, my, my Spanish improved. Ah, uh, greatly. Um, but nevertheless, I I I hear what you say about expectations, and I think that was that was a part that I almost still kick myself over in a way was not learning how to manage expectations well. And, and likewise, I, I I do not want to say. And one of the conclusions from the paper that I wrote on this was the solution that I converged upon was probably not the ideal solution for this application. Um, because of uh, at the time what I could get through my contacts with the Peace Corps were bicycle parts but that was not something that I could get easily within my community (laughs) and if I had to do it all over again I would have pursued something different if I if I pursued it which which I think is an important part of of that learning process Uh, not only are you trying to uh, design something for a new context but you may make some mistakes along the way and if and there were several things that i would have done differently if i could have
1: but that, like, that carries over to yeah. black and beach now too you know I, you can take that problem and analogy and bring it into the workplace now it's like you got to solve a problem at black and beach but you only have these tools at your disposal like they're design constraints i mean essentially if you want to think about them right it's like you can design in a bicycle in your design but if you don't have access to a bicycle you can't build it so oh yeah
2: yeah yep. like
1: i think it's almost like an extreme example of learning to deal with design constraints that you're probably still using and leveraging from to today
0: yeah yeah oh exactly so tony tell us what you're doing now with your day job at black and beach uh yeah sure um
2: so uh, black and beach is a is a large em- employee owned engineering consulting firm that has Uh, many different divisions. I think it's bread and butter has been power generation for for a long time, but uh, a big part of its portfolio is, is, uh, in the municipal water sector, which is where I find myself, uh, as a mechanical engineer in water. Um, so to step back a little bit, we mostly pursue just the design part of what could be considered a traditional, design, bid, build process. I'm not sure how familiar your, your listeners might be with this or if I it. should explain. Yep. Mm-hmm. So the design, bid, build process of, uh, within the construction sphere. And I'll tell you the first time I ever heard this term was during a career fair and I had no idea what it meant. And now I know. So somebody who's out there listening in school, now you will know. Um, so a, a a uh, municipality um, in, in the water sector, we largely work with municipalities, your, your large cities, your, your smaller towns throughout this great nation. Uh, they have a chunk of money um, that might be in what's called like a capital improvement fund. And they have a problem. They have deteriorating infrastructure. They have population growth. Um, they have uh, new areas of, of the city that will need sewer service, whatever it happens to be. They will say, hey, we got a problem. And they will put out what's called a request for uh, proposals, an RFP, um, which says, hey, engineering consulting firms, engineering services firms, please put together a solution for this. Give us some kind of ballpark figure of what it would cost. And then they select that firm um, to pursue the design phase. So Black & Beach, uh, in my role, will be the designer of a project which could take anywhere from um, a few months to several years, depending on the size and scope of the the project, after which it is bundled up and handed off in what's called the the bid part. So we've done design, now we're going to do the bid part. This is where contractors step in and say, oh, Black & Veatch, you put together all these Lego instructions for how to build this pristine, beautiful water or wastewater treatment plant. Um, It's going to cost X amount of money. And um, depending on the, uh, the reputation of the, the contractor, the confidence of the bid, the relationship with the, the city itself, who is the client in, in for, for Black & Beach, um, a, a contractor is awarded the contract to, to build. Um, so that is your design, bid, build. Um, so the building of said plant could take place, uh, you know, also over the course of several years, depending on the size and scope. And often Black & Beach is contracted to perform what's called uh, um, construction phase services, in which we'll perform some uh, amount of oversight over the contractors to ensure that it's being built in the way that we intended uh, it to operate and, and, and to uh, have some fidelity of design and assurance that that things are going to go smoothly. So the way that I fit into this is I am... Down in the details uh, during design, the mechanical engineering group that I'm part of, uh, that I'm part of uh, we have, like you were talking about, we have all the design constraints. Somebody in an earlier part of the project has decided that this is the technology we want to pursue. This is the this is the layout of the pump station. This is the 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 uh, this is the site that that we have in mind for this. And uh, the mechanical engineer will say, "Okay, if you need, you know, if you need 700 standard cubic feet per minute of hot air to travel through this pipe into this basin, so that it can provide um, life-giving oxygen to some microbes that are going to eat, you know, human waste, I gotta go talk to a uh, uh, an application engineer representing the the OEM to." to to figure out if their equipment is going to work in this application, so we might speak to three or four vendors of, of of a piece of equipment and say, "Hey, you know, we need this pressure, we need this flow. Can you get it to us, and what's it going to cost?" And we will, uh, you know, it can go. The process can go a number of ways, but eventually, those those vendors who we expect to be able to provide that. Um, might be named in a specification. That is to say, when a contractor goes to uh, put together his bid, he would select from that list someone that they believe can supply that system. So multiply that by five different subsystems. Say you have an aeration design or a pumping design or chemical feed pumps, um, conveyors, uh, incinerators, uh, uh, you know, aeration applications can be high pressure, can be low pressure. Uh, I've been working on a a project right now that's involving high-pressure compressed natural gas, you know, landfill uh, gas capture, uh, incineration. Yeah, kind of the anything that needs to convey (laughs) air or water or a water-like substance that may have uh, left uh, the toilet, um, we'll we'll get it through the plant.
1: Hmm. So it sounds like, I mean, Black me, as far as I know, I mean, it's a huge company. And so like, these are big teams. And so can you like, maybe walk me up the technical ladder? So you sit within a team that's on a subsystem, like, and how many people are on that and then how, like that goes up. Can you just kind of like walk me through maybe the, the layers of this organization that you're in?
2: Sure, sure. Um, let me, let me start with a small project first. Let me start with a small project first, and then we'll maybe expand on the largest project that I'm working on today. Um. So a small project might consist of me as a junior engineer and then a a senior engineer above me kind of giving guidance and advice and saying, hey, this is the next step that we need to do to validate this design. And likewise, it would also, you know, validate any calculations or assumptions, um, vet those um, in part of a quality control aspect. So in a small study that uh, I, I might be doing, we would be investigating some smaller problem that is specifically mechanical in nature this is something that we they they know that they need two mechanical engineers to do and um we are working uh for a a regional office who's asked for help on this work black and beach as you say is a large uh is a large organization there are uh i think hundreds of offices worldwide uh many of them in the united states but also europe uh South America um Australia uh, Southeast Asia and they all serve a portfolio of clients so many of the clients that I work for and this small example could be on the east coast the west coast and it could be in South America depending on depending on the needs um so the my work products are then for the for the delivery of a if a package to a client in a in a regional office so that's that's a very short chain that's a very short chain now if i'm if i'm on a larger project say one that might span a few years or um you know might serve a a large city the uh mechanical engineering team might might consist of four to six engineers each uh, in charge of a subsystem. Like you guys are going to be the pumping team. You guys are going to be the um, aeration team. You guys are going to be the odor control team. That's only the mechanical part of it. At the same time, we have to interface with similar uh, disciplines. So to to think of the delivery of my work product, I need to share information with, uh, for instance, equipment weights. If I know how much a piece of, equipment is going to weigh, I need to pass that off to a structural engineer so they can design, design an equipment pad. They also need to know the dimensions to hand it off to the drafting team to develop the drawings uh, or develop, to develop 3D models of this to deliver to the client. Um, all that is managed by a, a civil team who knows the site plan and the, slight, the site layout. Um, instrumentation and controls uh, needs to know. What inputs and outputs need to be reflected in the the piping and instrument diagrams the uh, the pnids we call them So they need to know that oh this needs to turn on this way and when to be able to write a system of instructions uh, So that can be integrated to work smoothly. So every every piece of what we work on um, is, Is part of a larger part and sorry, I forgot electrical because because people live and work in these things. Um, we have to have lighting that meets code. We have to have ventilation that meets code. We have to have plumbing that meets code. Um, architects know, know a lot of that work. So, so a large wastewater treatment plant is going to cover many, many, many um, engineering disciplines that are working in tandem. And when we work in tandem, we're often, uh, we often have structured um, collaborative calls. This been the case and before this 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 work from home madness. I was I was accustomed to having calls with uh, upwards of 15 people describing the coordination effort that we, that we, that we need to to make uh, to to continue in the process of design.
1: Gotcha. So excuse me, um I guess what like what's your current title and like maybe can you describe some of the titles of the people around you? You talked about like your title and the person who's reviewing things and then like maybe your boss's title, just so people can get familiar if they want to like look up these types of jobs.
2: Oh sure, yeah. Um, it's pretty hierarchical, and it's what you'll find in um, smaller firms and larger firms. Uh, my my official title is mechanical engineer two, and when I started, I I was a mechanical engineer one. Um, that, the expectations of that is to you know perform uh, small small analyses. Um, you're by no means a a, a, a master, but uh, of a of a major subsystem. Um, but someone who would review my work could be as high as a, an, an engineer seven or an engineer and as low as an engineer three. Someone who's, who has much more experience than me or, or uh, more experience with me uh, than me and um, maybe also holds their um, professional engineering licensure. As mechanical engineers, that's not always expected. Many of us have what's called industrial exemption if you work, say for Brennan, you work for, you know, GM, I I think that there's pretty small expectation for you to get your professional licensure. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, I don't He's know if anyone yes. has it. <laughs> right.
2: Um, so when you're working in the, for the built environment for, you know, for uh, that, that deals with anything with heavy construction or that the public is going to engage with, um, it's highly encouraged that you get your professional license. So my work uh, in the official channel of quality control has always been reviewed by somebody uh, with um, with their PE, who the ability to eventually uh, maybe even sign and stamp um, my work products.
1: Yeah, and if for those who are listening, we did have uh, James Buckingham on episode one. He's a civil engineer who talked from the civil side about getting your PE, and signing and stamping and things like that. So it's it's interesting to hear kind of this this mechanical engineering side um, compared to the civil side. But if you're interested in learning more from the civil side, um, listen to episode one. But that's that's really helpful, Tony. That's really interesting. Um, I think that's it's good to know that. Yeah, people don't necessarily have to because I think it, it's a big confusion when you're an undergrad and people are like looking to sign up for the 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 exam. And it's like, should I do that? Should I pay two hundred and fifty dollars or whatever it is now to take it? And um, I think it's especially confusing for mechanical engineers whether or not they should do it. It seems more straightforward for civils, um, but it sounds like it sounds like even for you, Tony, it's not something that you think is a requirement unless you're going to sign and stamp.
2: Um, uh, let me yeah, let me clarify my my statements a little bit and also shed some light with my my personal you know, anecdote, my personal experience with this. I did not uh, get, I did not take the FE exam um, after undergrad or during undergrad. Um, and uh, a number of my colleagues at Black and Beach hadn't either. And we have, as a rule, kicked ourselves over it because it's really hard to relearn that, that stuff. And um, within my work, and, and I apologize if, if I wasn't clear, um, at, at, at my expected, uh, with the expectations associated with my title right now it's not expected that i have a pe but there is a ceiling on advancement within our organization um, uh, without it because even if you're not uh even if you're not signing and stealing things yourself uh for you know for adherence to uh, you know certain quality quality control guidelines that i'm not um, by no means an expert in. The, the expectation is that to review the work of a junior engineer that will eventually be signed and sealed, it needs to have been uh, examined and gone through a, a QC process by someone who has a PE. So, so I don't have that now, but I am pursuing the, I, I, I'm preparing for the tests uh, for this year, as a matter of fact.
1: Okay. So broadly, you'd say, like, if you're in the municipal design space, even as a mechanical engineer, you should be thinking BE.
2: Exactly. And, and for that, for exactly the reasons you say, you know, a lot of schools will provide uh, subsidies or some kind of incentive for, for a young whippersnapper undergrad to take that test. By all means, if your school uh, does that, go for it. And uh, likewise, Black and Veatch has a bonus program. So if you get your PE, there's a bonus associated with it. Um, so that's that's something to keep in mind too, uh, especially for a lot of the the uh, professional development things. You know, your extracurriculars like learning some element of uh, the safety code or the boiler code or some obscure pipe stress code. Um, you know, there. You might look at uh, programs that, that your employer has for um, um, carrying the cost of some of those things, especially if it promises some kind of uh, advancement for you and, and it's an investment for
0: them. Before you even get to the PE though, you obviously have to like learn a lot about your positions. And for you, you're working on, you'd be working on one of many different types of mechanical systems. What was it like coming into your role when you started and having to learn um, a lot of new things like, like we all do when we start a new role, how did that, how did that turn out for you? And what was that process? Was there any sort of formal training you had, or was it all just, here's the project, here's like a mentor, learn as you go? A little bit of both.
2: Um, it, it's so funny that my first major project that I was on was a pump station, and the first major work product that I was developing was a system curve. And learning how to read a pump curve is something that I learned in undergrad, but I hadn't seen it in three or four years. Um, so I, you know, I, that was literally pulling out college textbooks and elementary resources uh what's what's the old adage google is your friend um it it is a combination of formalized processes because um black and beach has over 100 years of uh design and construction experience it has a deep bench and a deep library of resources to be able to um, either teach yourself or honestly these are uh, standard practices or work instructions that say, if you're going to uh, pursue a design of this system, these are the things that you need to consider. So th- that's definitely part of it. But likewise, I, I I work with individuals who are on, you know, who are on ASME committees, who who know the Hydraulic Institute standards for pumps, who know the testing procedure or helping write the testing procedure for like low pressure compressors. Uh, So there is a certain degree of mentorship and that's also a certain degree of self-education as well. Um, The nice thing about the nice thing about um, a comprehensive mechanical engineering degree is while you may not use everything, somehow these schools have found a way to cram in at least a cursory Uh, introduction to just about every element of mechanical engineering there is. So um, uh, I'd also like to point out partially, uh, partially referring back to the the PE exam, is that it's actually for mechanical engineers, it's broken into subsystems or it's broken into sub disciplines. There's a specific, there's a specific exam for mechanical components, and there's a specific exam for um, heating and ventilation, and a specific exam for thermal fluids so even when i pursue my pe my my intent is because of my exposure my experience and what i've learned from working on these things over the last you know three years or so is to pursue thermal fluid systems it's the thing that's most applicable to me like working on pumps working on heat exchangers that kind of thing um and it's also a uh, a thing to point out from from speaking to my supervisor about this as kind of an an intermediate career goal is that it is just the beginning it you know the it's almost a crossing of the bar for for an engineer in in the field that i find myself in but um you know the mastery of these principles is something that takes uh years and years and and no two systems is alike. Um, very early in my career, I, uh, my very short career, uh, probably my first year there, I was uh, designing a vacuum system for priming a pump, which is um, so pumps. Pumps can't move water, right? Like there's there's a, a centrifugal pump can't pull water up. It's it's a thing that that exists. So, but sometimes a pump might be located above the water that it needs to pump and you would need to prime that. Um, a way to perform that is to um, use a vacuum pump, a liquid ring vacuum pump that draws water into the body of the, of the centrifugal water pump to, to be able to get the, the system going. And then from there, you know, water kind of takes care of itself. But those aren't designed very often. Right. So I was designing one as a as a three to six month engineer under the guidance of a senior engineer who last designed one like 15 years ago because it just doesn't come up because best practice says we don't like to put pumps higher than the water they need to pump. But sometimes you got to. Um, So anyway, so I found myself handling that problem, which is is odd even by uh, career professional standards. Oh, that's an odd system. Yeah. Who would do that? Yeah, I don't know, but we got to fix it now. Okay, well, now Tony's the expert.
1: <laughs> well, that speaks to like, the idea of when you're in undergrad, though, to like, kind of be a sponge and not only learn how to learn, but also try to try to remember kind of these core areas. I guess where I'm trying to go with this is, you know, if you were to talk to yourself back in undergrad, now that you've kind of learned some of these life lessons, like, would there be some things that you just want to kind of kind of highlight i mean you've already talked about this idea of pe like you would probably highlight that to yourself like hey take the pe while you remember it yeah um i mean, hindsight 2020 20, who knows that you would have gone into municipal but are, are there other things that you think that you would want to to tell young robert hayes um
2: yeah i i think that uh young young robert anthony hayes um i think that um, pursuing a an, pursuing a project with a professor would be a fun thing to do early on it's something I tried to do and there wasn 't a good fit on it um, but I think that the sentiment was correct that part of part of the way to learn part of the way to learn engineering is to do engineering and outside of uh, coursework if if your timeline affords it if your if your schedule affords it um, Join a join a competition team. Do concrete canoe. Do, do uh, you know Formula SAE or uh, any of these other uh, mini Baja human powered vehicle. There are valuable teamwork and engineering skills that are that are developed in those things that are um, um, that are so important. I think um, to to a career in engineering. Uh, it, that's the hard skills and that's also the 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 soft skills of working with the team, the hard skills of this is what engineering looks like. Um, if I had to go back and talk to young Robert Anthony Hayes, I would tell him to try and get that internship. I did not think that I had the time or the bandwidth or the ability to to pursue an internship um, when I was in school, and, and having worked at Black and Beach I'm seeing young interns come in that are um that are sophomores juniors who don't know what they're doing yet, right? They don't because they work because they haven't had that. But when they're coming back your journey over the summer to their journey over the winter to the journey over the next summer, they're saying, yeah, no, this was really great to know how to to learn how to read a pump curve before I took hydraulics to know how to, you know, to to know the, the purpose of a control valve before I have controls Um, that even though, you know, you're not really following along in the book and you're um, stumbling along the way, it's, it's not necessarily about mastery so much as exposure and that exposure is helping you acquire that much faster by the time you see it in a, in a controlled environment.
0: I think that's a really good point is that we tend to think that like learning informs experience and ability but like you're saying experience can also inform learning if you can be mentally like primed oh i've seen this before i didn't fully understand it but at least i've seen it now i can do it it's kind of like now if i've like learned something however long ago it was 10 years or whatever uh in undergrad uh to be like okay now if i have to go back and relearn it i at least saw it once and i can learn it again or just having that exposure to it or seeing things in my work now being like yeah like I never learned this in school, but I have an idea of it now. I can go back and look at the textbook and I can be like, "Oh, okay, I can put these pieces together." I think mm-hmm. that's a really good point that we tend to think about. Like, I didn't, I didn't internship until after my first senior year of college, so I, I was almost in the same boat. And I was like, "Oh, I should probably, I should probably get on this." Um, and I think it also helps you like understand working for a company and what that's like. Like you're saying, going on those teams at school can help you learn some of those interpersonal and soft skills. So what is, what are some of the main soft skills that you see as being really important in your job?
2: Oh man, it's, it's almost, uh, the, the beaten dead horse at this point. I think that most, most engineers recognize that communication is the cornerstone of a functioning engineer. I, I, I know that people struggle with it, and um, I forget, um, there was a playwright who I think said, and I'm gonna butcher this, and you could cut out this this quote if I butcher it too bad, but uh, the problem with, the commun- with communication is the illusion that's been achieved, um, that uh, even if you think you're a good communicator, you can say a lot and say a little. Um, you know, in, in my work, uh, a, a lot is done over email. Um, Sometimes we're dealing with people in multiple time zones and um, it's it, it, it's it's essential that you Uh, remain open to the idea that what might seem like criticism or hostility in written communication is actually probably just an engineer speaking matter of factly, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that's, that's, uh, that's, that's something I think we're all kind of, kind of guilty of. And, and having those phone calls uh, is important. Uh, I I recall a recent conflict that I, I I say conflict is just a little bit of friction kind of in this, uh, in this work from home space where, because I had been busy on other work Um, I kept uh, needing to put off and, and, and a little bit regretfully push off some work that needed to be delivered to another coworker. Like, you know, you, you have one hot project and I'm working on as many as seven or eight projects a given week. Um, You know, you have a hot deadline on one and you think, well, I'll get to you at the end of the week and you Haven't reached out to your supervisor to find out that they're actually struggling under their workload because they're also working on seven different projects in a maybe a more um, More aggressive timeline or just more aggressive Requirements. We got a lot of people who wear a lot of hats Um, So I think that that the, the way that this was solved for me was we Kind of touched base not with each other at first, but strangely, through a, a mutual a mutually respected third party who was like, "Hey, did you know that they're struggling with this?" And I was like, "No, they haven't really spoken to me. they're struggling with this. well, I'm struggling with this and eventually, what it settled into was a call in which we got together and have now set up regular check-ins on hey I, I understand that you're busy, know that I'm busy too let's 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 um, figure out how to divide this workload and Keep a running record of who's in charge of what on OneNote, on Teams, on any of these other collaborative tools, to figure out you know what's on whose plate by when. So that that self time management, you can beat yourself up till kingdom come about your 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 own self discipline and your own uh, uh, time management. But when we're working on teams, sometimes we have to be that for each other. That's just the fact of it. Um, so that's that's been important to me.
1: Yeah, no, Tony, I think that. That brings up a whole realm of communication. Like, so we've talked a little bit in the show already for those listening about this idea of like, if you have to solve a problem and get to an answer, then you need to be able to communicate that to people. Like if you figure out how to design the pump system, you design it. Once you have solved the technical problem, you need to communicate it. But Tony, you're bringing in a whole new realm of communication that we haven't talked about that is so critically important. And it's this idea of when you work you're going to have a bunch of bunch of stuff going on. And at any given point, it's the biggest fire under you. That's what you're going to work on. But what sets that fire priority? What does, is it just you internally? No, in a good team, it's communication with all the stakeholders to evaluate it so that everyone knows how to prioritize and set the fire under them. And that involves communication and that involves discussion so that you can make an appropriate decision on what you're going to work on. And, that is communication like for those like that's like that's why you need to be an effective communicator about why your project needs priority or being understanding when something else comes of higher priority like you need to be able to also just communicate schedules and communicate priority and that has nothing to do with what you're going to learn in undergrad or grad school and that just like i mean maybe said to some extent about like well this is a higher priority because technically it's going to be harder and take more time like sometimes those things come into play but it's also just Resource management, and I, I, I I used to get, especially when I was younger, I used to get like really frustrated with meetings, and like I, and I think everyone can get frustrated, and I, I get that, but I think that's just how the system has gone to to try to help communicate and prioritize. Is like, well, we need people to communicate, so let's at least try to get them on a Zoom call or get them in the room together, and that that's at least a start. And I think probably most people can agree that that's not a great solution, but we don't we don't have anything better, and so, but being a good communicator and having empathy to the situation helps you realize that that's just what they're trying to do. Like when people are having meetings, like they're just trying to get people together to communicate, to help set priority. Um, And that's, that's just in communication. That's that's, that's not part of the technical engineering side, but that's going to be a big part of your life as an engineer. And so I don't know, just a, a great example of that for you. And yeah.
2: No, I I think that's precisely the point, and everybody rolls their eyes, especially you know I I've worked on big projects where um, the structure of a meeting, you know, you you have good ones and bad ones, and good project managers and bad project managers, or 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 project managers who are, let's say they're they're strong in different areas, uh, they're, they're not bad project managers, they're you know they're they're doing stuff that I can't do well. Um, but uh yeah an example of a a meeting that can be frustrating is one that says civil engineers any updates okay electrical engineers any updates when uh, the the best engineering managers that i've worked with are pointing out hey this is a this is a decision point that we need to make with the client does everybody have has everybody contributed the the material that's necessary and what's the next step um Kind of thinking about that priority and from a practical thing for what's worked with me and it took me and it took me a while when I when I first started I, I had a good buddy who he, he's later transferred into another office but he would see how anxious and I tend to be an anxious person to, to that as a fact that um, no one would dispute. Um, he, he would tell me, don't let this job get to you. Don't let, let this job get to you. And probably my first six months, I really let the job get to me. And yeah. uh, we've been having yeah. kind of a mini version of that as we've been adjusting to the work mm-hmm. from home era. But um, a, a rubric that I've kind of set up to remind myself about priorities and how to keep the ball rolling is to say external stakeholders, email them first. Internal stakeholders are the next, are the next step that needs to be, dealt with as far as getting a communication item going um and then i can work on what i call big work you know work work products that i deliver because um it's funny you you may push off that 15 minute email but that 15 minute email might be the difference between a vendor getting information to you um two days from now or next week and that can slow somebody else down so for me it's been useful to to keep in mind not just not just what is the not as the easy thing to knock out or the what do I feel like working on but what's what's the what's the domino that's going to that's going to fall that makes everybody else's life easier before I get to my own and sometimes it stinks and you got to turn on do not disturb on teams and say no actually I do need these next 4 hours to go over these documents in depth um but I, I, I found that to be a practical way for me to keep in mind that if information, if information needs to keep flowing, the easiest way to do that is reach out to ex- external contacts first, internal contacts next, and then focus on my big projects. That's just a tip from Tony.
1: Yeah, no, I think, I mean, anyone, any project manager, anyone in manufacturing can also attest to this idea of like you you got to constantly monitor the, the domino effect. I mean, there's all kinds of terms for it, but essentially this idea of what are, what are your long lead items? What do you need to take care of now so that they can continue to follow um, the timeline that you need to? Cause things, cause especially it's a, another thing in an undergrad, like you think like things happen fast and some things don't like, especially in component stuff, Tony, like I've had experiences where it's like, okay, well I need to get a pump. Okay. Well, how, how, when can I get that pump? Well, it's about a four month lead time, you know? So if you want to, if you want it 4 months from now you probably uh should get me a po today well well it's going to take about 8 weeks to get a po so it looks like we're probably in the next quarter next year if you're going to oh, want and, wow. and you and you know like it's yeah. you get like these things can happen and so like there's but the, you know that that has nothing to do with learning pressures and volumes in your mechanical engineering class nothing no one you, you don't learn that at all like that's a that's a real life work failure that has to happen for you to learn unfortunately or a mentor above you saying hey tony check into that pump right now because you're going to realize you need to get that done right now and oh yeah yep i think that there's just a lot of well, yeah i don't get insight there but
2: no that's that's interesting because because of course i work in the built environment and also the work that i do Th- the work that I design doesn't get built by me. That's almost opaque to me mm. in, a, in a way. It's pretty
1: crazy about your industry. It's like just designing things that have a chance of not even like, how are the construction companies signing up for these things?
2: Yeah. Yeah. There, I mean, there's, there's a whole, there's a whole fun process of, you know, litigation and change orders and things like that, that definitely happen. Like there, yeah. there's work stories about a $10,000 hole that would have been you know it's it's one hour of work that got missed throughout design until some contractor points out and says "That's change order you know but but it's interesting to hear your perspective from the from the from the component side, because because of course I don't I don't work in manufacturing, right? We, we we put designs on paper that might get built five years from now, or even shelved for twenty years, and then becomes the the fodder for someone else's report. But but that's that's an interesting insight. Um, I don't know. I mean, we talked about how conversational this is, but Brennan, do you have any anything to add to that? Like, what's your experience at GM with stacked priorities and timelines?
0: Um, I think it's, it's a little bit different than what you guys, because I work on like one project over the course of its lifetime and beyond. And so we do have... We do have different priorities to work on, depending on where your different programs. So sometimes I juggle uh, a different vehicle program that's in different stages of being released. And so it's understanding, you know, what is the priority on this one? What's the priority on that one? Uh, and then also, it's it, it's not quite like, you know, like what you guys are saying about thinking long term out in terms of how long it's going to take to get ready your order or prepare. Uh, but it is, how long is it going to take me to do this work? How long fast does someone else expect it to get done? And where can we get to a point of understanding on that? Uh, we're going through some of that right now. Uh, you have different stakeholders in it who are coming down from different places of looking at the same problem. You know, some people are like, we need this now. Uh, and some people are like, that might not be the right thing. We might need to wait if we want to like release a good product. And so I can be sometimes at the, the bottom of that waiting for people to make decisions so that I can go forward and finish something off to then meet a deadline that we have of when we're supposed to you know, release something to production to go out to manufacturing plants. Yeah. Whatever. Um, it's a little different, but it is still kind of some of that stacked things of if I'm waiting for someone to do something, then I have to be as prepared as I can to do my work once I've got the go ahead or the information from them and then release least someone else. And then it goes down and yeah. down the chain.
1: Right. And there's, I mean, like that's all communication. Like just for listening, everyone listening, yeah. like everything, yeah. every all that big part of Brennan's life and how he figures out what he's doing. That's all appropriate communication of a bunch of levels. And if, so if people aren't communicating well, like it just totally throws everything off and like, as an engineer, like maybe you hate to acknowledge that, but if you if you, you don't acknowledge that, like you're just going to cause problems for yourself. Unfortunately, like all all of everyone's success, especially in big organizations, has to do with communication. And so, if you feel yeah. like you're spending a lot of time communicating, that's probably because that's just what has to happen. Um, the other thing I would like to point out with what Brendan said is Brendan works in more of the test phase. So like later on in the product development cycle. And so I think for you, man, it's probably a lot of just like resource timing, like, Hey, yeah, I need to do this test, but the cold chamber isn't available for a month. So can't do it for a month. Like, you know, it's different than like, I need to design exactly. and build a pump that I can't get for four months, but it's like, I can't test and complete verification because I'm lacking a resource, whether it be labor or whatever
0: exactly it could be waiting for i need someone to have a software fix done that then is released out in a software patch that i have to go and test or it's waiting for a test facility it's waiting for a vehicle um yeah like you said it could be a lot of things when you're further down and and the further down you go the uh the higher i guess the further down you go the more you are affected by decisions higher up so like tony you're a little bit you're a little bit higher in that chain that you're not necessarily on the build phase of it you're kind of in the design phase of it so like like you kind of said, if you're delayed on anything on your end, that could delay anything further down. Um, and then that, depending on where you're working, that could be me, it could be someone else. Um, and how it all, how it all rolls down. Yeah.
2: A, uh, a, an, an experience that, you know, we're working on these multiple disciplinary teams, um, but you're, you're talking about being at the end of the line on a lot of the work that, that I do. Um, uh, there, there can be conflict um, from a, from a budget and schedule perspective, because one of the benefits of, of the work that I do is that it's pretty much engaged with the process of the project from start to finish the The selection of major equipment is informed by the site and the technology and the the, the, the scope of the of the um, either rehabilitation or new construction or, or what have you the The mechanical portion of it carries throughout the duration of the project from pretty early on. but other disciplines don't get engaged until Maybe the, the design of the project is, um, is uh, two-thirds of the way done. And what's happened on problem projects is because of uh, a, a number of different issues that, that can come up. Um, unexpected changes in approach, reluctance by the client to consider the impact of a design change, um, client preferences, newly discovered information about regulatory information, something like that. And then what happens at the end, somebody at the end of the line is now left with insufficient budget to perform the work that they need to perform. Where you know the 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 electrical engineers have a certain number of labor hours or equivalent labor hours that they would need to produce their drawings and and make those changes and and what have you. And doing work twice is always expensive. Um, so yeah, so it, it's it's often the case or. Uh, more specific to the work that I do, what what will happen is that someone misunderstood the requirements of the problem and maybe it took it upon themselves to design something that they weren't qualified to design. And then when you're doing that cleanup work, what you're left with is the leftovers of the budget that was budgeted for that item. And then so you're left with a fraction of the um, you know, 100% to 200% of the the, the uh, level of effort, but with a fraction of the budget for that effort, which is always fun. Uh, yep. That's, uh, yeah, that's a fun one.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, people, yeah. people make mistakes. Like for those listening, oh, let's, sure. let's say you're in undergrad. I mean, there's other people listening to the show, but like if you're an undergrad, right? You go in and take an exam. The percentage of people that get 100%, meaning they do, the, they solve it 100%, is Probably zero, maybe, maybe not, you know, but like it's really small. Like people make mistakes, even if they're studying the material, like that yep. still happens when you get into work. People are still hopefully shooting higher if they're in a technical area, but they're, you know, they're still probably getting 70, 80% of it right. Like they're still making mistakes, and that's just part of people. And so you're going to be in work situations where people have made a mistake and you're trying to figure out what to do. That situation right. will happen. And how do you yeah. solve that? You use a skill you don't learn in undergrad, which is communication. That's
2: <laughs> <something>. <laughs> So, absolutely,
1: like, you need to acknowledge that commu- even know, let's say let's I'm gonna like if you're listening, you think you're the smartest person in the world, and I'm gonna say, okay, well, what scores do you get? You say, well, I get high 90s. Okay, well, you're still telling me there's a percent of the time that you're gonna fail. In those situations, you need to be able to c- conduct yourself in a positive way, and you you do that through communication to solve the problems. Now, that's a ridiculous extreme example, right? You put us back to the average person who's gonna screw up 20 percent of the time. Whatever, get 80 percent on a given day, like. Acknowledge that. And so then how do you how do you make better of that? Then you communicate because you know, you're going to yep. get in spots where we don't have the technical ability to achieve what we want with the budget we have. What's the situation? It's to communicate with the stakeholders and come to a decision as a team on how we're going to come forward. That's, exactly. that's how it exactly. works in industry.
2: We, yeah. Yep. Yeah. How do we recover the health of the project? Because you can't, I mean, it's it's easy to say it is what it is, but at the end of the day, we, we the client has certain expectations and you, you need to, you need to meet those even, even in difficult circumstances. Um, and that, that's not to say that there's not room for forgiveness. You know, even like I, I point out some of the expertise of, of people I work with, It, it it's my immediate it's supervisor who made the $10,000 hole. Like that was, that was, a, you know, that's a, and, and I, I think you're right that there is uh there should be a, a, some um, there there has to be a level of forgiveness and uh, an expectation of positive intent um, and again these are these are matters of, of, of character that one learns the hard way i think but they're they're cheap lessons to take when you know the the, the sooner you learn them the better
1: right that's why i think like that character aspect if you're applying for a job and or whatever or you're trying to recruit like That's why people, I think, look for these communication and look for these, like you, what you said, positive intent skills. Because the person sitting across that's judging you on whether or not they're going to hire you or whatever, give you a recommendation, they're going to be your teammate. And they want to know that when you screw up, which is going to happen, that you're, you have positive intent and that you can communicate well to solve the problem. And in the same way, when I screw up, I want people to... Be respectful of me in that situation. Know that I'm trying my best, and to communicate well with me to come to an effective solution.
2: I'll tell you um, when I when I got hired onto this job. Um, maybe about a year in after I'd kind of gotten gotten my 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 groove um, as far as uh, maybe not with the work itself, but definitely with the personalities involved. That uh, I'm I'm an affable guy, um, um, quick with a joke kind of thing. But it, it was amusing to speak to my, um, the, the gentleman who hired me, right, from the phone interview, um, basically, and um, having been involved now in some of the, the recruiting activities that we do for, for interns. He's like, yeah, Tony, you had a good GPA, but. Good GPAs are a dime a dozen, you know. A three point nine doesn't really distinguish you when people are looking through stacks of engineering resumes. But he said you had good fit for the organization because you know when you when you speak and when you interact with others, we know the values that you have, and that's and I and I think that that's that's part of it is organizational fit and can you conduct yourself well in um, challenging circumstances? I mean, circumstances aren't always challenging, and on a on a well-oiled project a good one they won't be challenging but things happen you know we're people
0: so before I run out of time Tony uh, I know that you are also involved in some engineering activities outside of work uh, with Engineers Without Borders uh, which is kind of one of those things that can still be a professional organization even though we sometimes if you're aware of it it's a uh, associate with college groups can you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing with them sure I, I absolutely can um,
2: I, I am active with the uh, Kansas City professional chapter, a, as you mentioned, EWB, I think for, for younger listeners is most associated with um, with um, a, a, a campus or an on-campus activity, you know, and you, you send engineers out, to the, out into the woods to fix something, I don't know. Uh, Personally, I've been engaged with Engineers Without Borders and a couple of different initiatives. There's an ongoing project that we have in uh, the Dominican Republic for the the, uh, installation uh, of a well and a water distribution system. Um, That's a multiple multiple disciplinary team of uh, a a network of individuals here who are engaged in engineering practice throughout the metro. Uh, We rotate on a monthly basis to other firms. So uh, every month, a different firm is is hosting EWB, and we have a little pizza party and break down the hey, this is what we're going on. This is the status of the DR project. This is the status of the Guatemala project. We're just uh, kickstarting a rainwater harvesting uh, application in Peru that's been done successfully by a couple other branches, and I and I hope to be involved in the assessment trip for that. Um, you know the the spanish language that i got in the peace That's corps awesome. has really helped me on that regard my ability to be engaged in this branched explicitly out of my ability to speak spanish i had not really been engaged with engineers without borders here professionally um, i'd attended one meeting in college and kind of fell off fell, and it fell off my radar um, but last year it became uh, known to me that there was a need for a translator to go to a uh, an assessment trip um for some of the work that was going on in the Dominican Republic and uh, uh so i i uh i was able to go um black and beach has a generous policy for um compensating you for that time um black and beach um in the in full disclosure is a is a is a uh, major contributor to engineers without borders and has had high ranking individuals on that board Um, so they, they want you to use your engineering skills to, to help people. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a good way to a network. I'm, I'm talking to people who work with some of our competitors in a congenial environment. You know, people who are, who are like-minded in the pursuit of the common, in the common good. Um, It's a way to stay engaged in your local community. Uh, Your Professional Engineers Without Borders chapter will probably also have local initiatives in which they can help. Um, There's a, uh, a, I think a project with a small scale garden uh, here for a a local urban agricultural group that has needed some help building um, an energy efficient greenhouse and some, some irrigation equipment. Uh, these are civil engineers electrical engineers mechanical engineers who know who knows something about you know delivering even small-scale uh, infrastructure uh, yeah so I, I would say that that's a positive way to uh, give back uh, to your community so much in the uh, in the crazy world of engineering there are a lot of demands on our time and if you have the luxury of extra time or, or feel the need to carve out time in a in a way that engages and grows your skills your network and warms the warms your heart you know as is as that borders
0: no that's awesome you're able to to keep doing that and you know continue in that vein of what you're doing in peace corps using skills you learn network um applying that and like we don't always think about engineering outside of work besides I don't know like people I work with work on car they work on cars during the day they go home and work on cars uh and it's kind of like that that for you but it actually has a a meaningful impact uh beyond just uh, someone's garage or home or or personal interest so that's that's really awesome Tony that you're able to do that
1: All right, well, I think that probably wraps up the time. Tony, really appreciate you coming on the show, man. Really uh, enjoyed your insight. I think it's, yeah, we talked about a lot of stuff besides just engineering too, which I think is also helpful. So I appreciate you uh, allowing us um, an opportunity to to discuss those things as well.
2: No, thanks for the the invitation to be on the pod. Uh, Thanks for the warm conversation, the good insight. I always appreciate. You know, I, 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 you're talking about people who work on cars all the time. I talk on people who work on wastewater treatment plants all the time. So it's it's nice to be able to know what other engineering disciplines look like other other avenues of, of of this degree which we happen to share um so yeah thanks for, we do totally thanks for having different me. things yeah I yeah don't... we do totally different things
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty funny it's like well we're we gonna design a pump to uh cycle uh human feces or a pump to the cycle coolant to cool the a thousand horsepower engine uh, it's it's all the same
2: yeah it's all the same uh, uh we we like to joke water goes in water or spins around water goes out <laughs> that's, that's what a pump is
1: quote-unquote water in your case water right. water.
2: Yeah. <laughs> 95% water 95 percent water don't ask about the other five percent don't ask about <laughs> the other five
1: all right guys it was good to talk to you talk to you later
0: awesome. thanks tony see you guys I really love talking to Tony. He's he's obviously a good friend of mine. I've spent I spent a lot of time with him. And it, it's great to really to hear more about uh, his professional uh, experience so far since uh, we, we parted ways.
1: Such a character, it, man. So like when he yeah. when he joined the the Zoom thing, his name said Ra and i was like, "rah, he must think that we're just making funny names because i think that's awesome." But his name is Robert Anthony Hayes. Like it's like he's like that kind of person where you see something like that and you're like, "oh, Tony's being a goofball. This is awesome." <laughs> when actually he was just putting his initials. Like he's just such a cool guy. He's he's always a character, which is great.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But he has so many good insights about things mm-hmm. and yeah. and i think in in the discussion we just had he has a lot of different experiences outside of work and school. Um, So he did, he did the Peace Corps. He chose a very unconventional path to getting his master's degree. Uh, He does some stuff now with engineers without borders outside of work. Uh, He really does a lot outside that really helped. I mean, I was saying as we talked about helps inform his work today. And and I think his advice about like, if you're in, if you're in college still join a student team, get different experiences that way. Uh, You're going to learn, you're going to learn soft skills like we talked about, uh, but also some technical skills. And I think that's really important because our, our education and our knowledge is more than the sum of what we just learned in classes. It's the sum of all our experiences and how we can bring those into our work.
1: Right. Yeah. And they, they constantly help build on each other. Like there are synergistic values to having these things mixed together. You know, it's a, if you're working on pumps for your local project through some NGO or whatever, and then you have to go and then design pumps at work, like you're going to be better at both of those situations for having to work on both of them. And it's, that's cool when you can have the things you enjoy like build on each other right it's always the idea of like if i just do one single thing like that's okay but if i can have things that actually build on each other yeah the sum becomes greater than the individual parts and that can be true for your knowledge too which is cool um mm-hmm. one thing that uh, we there was no shortage of discussion on and this one was communication again another i guess theme of the podcast is communication um and i think it's incredibly important and i think tony brought some great examples of that and how it how it works with his life and I love that he talked about problems and like how he used communication and problems. Like he had his coworker or something that thought was maybe upset, but it ended up being just this communication issue. And like that all happens. It's so real life. You know, email is is asynchronous. It has a lot of positives, but there are some really, really negatives on the communication side of email and how it's really easy to think someone's mad at you or someone's upset. And really, I forgot what he said, but some of the idea of like, just being an engineer, that person is just being an engineer when they're like, they're maybe just speaking facts. And I, I just think it's yeah, another continue important emphasis on communication, which is so hard. Like it, like the thing about communication, right? It's like, well, we have to learn how to communicate. And that's, that's a really, what do you do with that, right? If you're someone sitting there and someone says, hey, you need to learn how to communicate better you look at them, what do I do with that? Like that, that, doesn't, that. doesn't, make like, sense. how do I do that? And I, I don't know the answer to that person listening. I don't like, all I can tell you is that when I talk to people and we talk about real life and how the world works, like communication is a big part of it. And so I don't know. I, I feel bad. I feel like I'm telling you, I feel like I'm telling the world there's a problem, but I don't have a great solution. And part of it is maybe taking communication types classes. It's learning how to write an email and use commas appropriately so that your words and your sentences can come across appropriately. But it's also like learning body languages and learning that when someone's doing this thing, they're probably actually upset at you or, you know, and I don't, there's not a playbook for that. I mean, there's, I'm sure no, people I tried t- to write them, but...
0: I totally agree. I think a lot of it is looking at situations you're in and seeing where communication was good or bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've, I've been in meetings where someone called into a meeting and two people are yelling at each other. Like one person in the room is yelling at someone on the phone. And I'm like, this is not great communication. No one is solving a problem here. Right. Um, so it, it's looking at those situations going, I think that didn't work well. How can I apply that to me? Uh, or looking at someone who communicated really well and being, how do I apply that? And, and that's not necessarily a perfect solution, but I think it's one way uh, of seeing how you can improve. It's, it's always something I think we always have to improve on because you're, you're going to be using it. Like, obviously, we don't just communicate at work. We communicate at home in our relationships with our friends, our family, um, whoever else we may be talking to or sending you know, written word to. It's, it applies everywhere. We have to be right. good at it.
1: Right. Yeah. And I, I guess if I tried to offer a piece of advice on communication, I guess I would start with this. I would start with the idea of listening and listening. Well, like I, there's a, there's a really famous bass player, bass guitar player named Victor Wooten. He's got this quote. It's we have good conversations when we are more focused on what the other person is saying rather than what we are saying. Music is the same way. And so he's talking about this idea of like when you're in a band and you're jamming, if you're listening to the band, the the sum of the individual parts is going to be greater because you're going to have better communication. And that analogy works perfect for me in, in normal life. Like when I'm actually sitting, listening to what the other person is saying, as opposed to sitting in my mind, thinking about what I'm going to say next, which if you're listening, I know you do that. Everyone does that. They sit there and they talk while the person is talking, they're trying to think of the next sentence they're going to say, stop that. Like you're not listening to them when you're doing that. Like you get, it's so hard to do. I know, especially if you're aggravated, but like the best communication happens when you listen the best. And that can be frustrating because it may not be reciprocal in every situation, but that's the my, the best advice i can i can give
0: yeah no totally man we could we could go on for this for, for for days hours i don't know weeks but but we got to go hours, it's already going to be a long
1: after hours episode, episode on communication
0: after hours it it, it it's probably going to happen let's be this honest it's
1: going to happen we're going to communicate the whole time
0: we are that's what we do all right well it's going to be a long episode i got to cut us off eventually so don't do it i, I will it's got to end we could, we right, could just have
1: we could have a moment of silence and see like how 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 that works for communication. Ready, everyone? Oh, Let's man. just pause.
0: I can't do it. I only <laughs> got like three seconds in me. I only got three seconds in me. Can't do it.
1: All right, everyone. Enjoy your day. <laughs> see ya.
0: All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engineer Your Career with Troy Bauman and Brennan Timrak. For more information about the show, visit our website at eycpodcast.com. There you can find show notes for each episode and get in touch with Troy and I. If you or someone you know are an engineer with an interesting or even not so interesting career journey and would like to be on the show, go on the website, send us a short bio, and we may just invite you to come on and share your story. And finally, if you want to show your support, please rate, review, like, or subscribe to the show on your podcast player of choice.